Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you truly are worthy, just as we have sung. And when we one day partake of the things that you prepared for us, we are going to sing your praises and we are going to shout out that you are worthy. So I just pray that as we look at this morning, at the future that you prepared for us, that we would just be in awe of you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we lived in high level, uh, the youth group uh, played a game called Bigger or Better. And uh, the idea of the game was they divided the group into several teams, and each team was given a small item. And they were to go to randomly to places throughout town, and they were to knock on a door, explain what they're doing, and uh, they, the people that they were knocking on the door could refuse to participate if they wanted to. But uh, they're asking them to exchange something for the item that they were giving them. And so the item had to be either bigger that they received or better. And uh, it was a great opportunity for people to get rid of junk. And uh, they did so often. And uh, the idea is that they would meet back at our house and uh, see which group came up with the biggest or the best item. And there was a prize for each group, the group that had the best item and a group that had the biggest item. And uh, one of the groups at their last stop was given a very big item. Uh, they were a little late and we we're all waiting for them when we saw them coming down the street pushing this old car. Uh, their, the hood was gone, the motor and transmission was gone, just this old rusty car. Um, and even one of the kids was inside the engine compartment pushing inside of there. And they were proud of this car. They had the biggest item. I'm not so sure that the youth leaders were enthralled as they had to dispose of that car afterwards. Because the person who gave it to them says, you're not pushing it back here afterwards. Well, this morning, I'd like to interest you in something that is much bigger and better than anything you've ever seen or experienced before. I'd like to interest you in a piece of real estate. This real estate includes a beautiful home just designed for you by a master architect. He's taken into consideration everything that you would ever want. Every wish, he knows you intimately. He's designed it just for you. This home is in the most beautiful city that you have ever seen. In fact, it's the most beautiful city of all the ages. Don't think of a dirty, dusty city with garbage, but think of a paradise with clean, flowing streams, parks, mature trees, clean streets that are golden, the streets are flawless. You'll never find a pothole in them. The city's huge. One author tried to figure out the maximum number of people from creation till today of the maximum amount of believers, and he tried to put it at the top, and he divided the acreage of the city by that many, many people. And if the city was, if we were to go there today, he estimated it would be about 74 acres per person in the city. The utilities are free. You'll never need the lights on because it's always daytime there. 
There'll be no pollution or smog, and the climate is perfect. It's a city full of love and laughter and music and meaningful things to do. You will never be bored. And alongside you are the best neighbors that you could possibly have. In fact, the whole city is like that. There's no crime here. You never have to lock your doors. Nothing bad ever happens there, only good things. There's no disease. Does it sound too good to be true? Well, it isn't. This is our future heaven, our future home, which Jesus is preparing for us, and he's the master architect, and he knows exactly how to prepare the best place for you. And so in Revelation 21, we're given a description of this new Jerusalem. And so this morning, I just want to go through Revelation, go through it verse by verse, and we're going to just look at the description that we're given. And so you can go to Revelation 21 in your Bibles and just follow through or just sit and listen. And so John writing there, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That's all he says about this new heaven and a new earth on that point, or the, the stars and so on. He doesn't describe it. But it's physical stars, it's a physical sun, it's a physical moon, it's a physical earth made up of topsoil, minerals, clay, rocks, water, plants, animals. Will it be the same as our earth now? Because he says this earth has passed away. Will the continents be the same? Will the earth be the same size, bigger or smaller? We're not told the answers to those questions. I think that we shouldn't expect it to be exactly like we see it now because the earth when it was first created was vastly different from what we see now. Scientists say that today we actually only see a shadow of what it once was. So don't expect it to be the same. Same plants perhaps, same animals. Again, we don't know the answer to those. But the Bible does mention horses, so... Horse lovers, you're guaranteed that at least. There. Very likely it's a recreation of the first creation, but not as we experience it today, but as it was when it was first created. So many species of plants and animals have been lost, and so if we could go back to that first creation, uh, it would be very different. So take the best of what you can imagine now, and it will be even better. Think of beautiful scenery. Think of all the animals we have. But all be tame. But even more animals. God made the earth and he said that everything in it, when he made it, he said it was good. And God is going to take the new creation back to what is good. And so John sees this new earth, this new creation, and then he says in verse 2, he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so he's trying to give us an analogy. And so he thinks of a, says, think of a wedding. And so the groom is at the front and the doors are closed at the back and everyone's waiting for the bride. And the wedding march happens. And those doors open and everyone sees her for the first time dressed in all of her finery. Maybe hours haven't been done on her hair, a glow on her face. And what do people tell the bride afterwards? You're beautiful. 
And as he sees this new city coming down, that's the only way he can describe it. He says, it's just beautiful. It was a moment of beauty and joy to him as he saw it. And verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so this city literally is heaven. It's the place right now where God dwells, lives and rules from, comes down to earth. There's a throne there in that city, and God the Father sits on it. And he's now come to live with us forever in his visible presence. Beside the throne is another throne where sits Jesus. God has become one of us. He's become human forever, living among us forever. And within us, God the Holy Spirit lives within us forever. You know, the end is better than the beginning. Because in the beginning, God would come and visit but in the end, God actually lives within us and lives with us. The end is better than the beginning. Forever he'll live with us. Forever we'll be his people. There'll be no strain, no sinning, no one ever losing this relationship. Forever he'll personally be with us. He will personally be your God. Forever. Does that get you excited? It should. Because if that doesn't get you excited this morning, because that's the best part of heaven, if that doesn't get you excited, you need to look at your life and ask yourself, why doesn't it get me excited? Now here are some of the other good things. Verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, life is full of bad things that make us cry. Everyone here today has their own story of pain, of sorrow, and of tears. Everyone does. Death happens to all of us. But not in this new Jerusalem. All sorrow and pain will become history. It will become a thing of the past, never to be experienced again. The story of a father and a son were listening to a preacher talk about this. And the preacher was commenting that in heaven, morticians would have to find a new job. They'll have no one to bury. They'd be out of work. And of that, the son leaned over to the dad and said, Dad, you're going to be out of work too. His dad was an insurance salesman. And it's true, there'll be no insurance sold in heaven because there'll be no need. There'll be no death or disasters. Here on earth, we all experience and do things that make us mourn and cry. And that We do things that create pain, spiritual, psychological, and physical pain. And we spend billions trying to get rid of pain. And some of it works for a time, but it's temporary. There's nothing in this world that takes away pain permanently. But the next world is going to fix that. And it takes it away permanently. Since I had my neck and brain injury, and I've been in pains ever since in 1981, there's nothing that they tried through the years that would take away the pain. Nothing impacted it. Until I had my knee replaced. 
And they, I told them not to give me any opiate form, and they want to give you morphine, which is a form of that. And uh, I said, it just makes me sick. They said, well, we're going to give it to you anyways. Well, finally, after I had quit vomiting and had worn out of my system enough, they gave me Toradol. Esther came to visit me the next day, and she said, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling wonderful. This is the best I've felt in decades. And uh, I, thought she, I thought I was feeling wonderful. She thought I was feeling buzzed. <laughs> but, you know, the pain-free was only temporary. When the drug wore off, I experienced the pain again. And that's this life, isn't it? But not in the new city. Pain of whatever type is gone forever, never to be experienced again. You're going to be feeling absolutely wonderful without the buzz. Pain has a good effect right now in our lives. We need pain. And pain even has the effect of making us long for heaven. But heaven is the place where pain is no longer needed. And thus it will be gone. Verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he'll be my son. There's an invitation in this. If you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's giving you that invitation here in this verse. If you are thirsty and you come to me, I'll give you to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. You will inherit all of this and I'll be your God and you'll be my child. What an invitation. But he doesn't just start with that invitation. He says, if you accept that, it's done. These words are trustworthy and true. I am the beginning and the end. This is as sure as my word. It has to happen because God has declared it done. You will drink of that spring of water of life forever. You will inherit all of this. God will be your God forever. And you will be his son or daughter forever. It is done. Even though you haven't experienced it yet. God, in his thinking, says it's done. It's an accomplished fact. It's sure. Verse 8 says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so John says that there's a group of people who will never experience this new city. They'll never experience this new earth, this new life. They'll never drink of the streams of living water. And it has to be that way because heaven wouldn't be heaven if those who reject God, those who are evil, were allowed in heaven. Because if evil could enter heaven, heaven would just become like what we have today. Full of sin and pain. 
God has to quarantine all sin, all hate, all pain, all evil away from heaven. And so God quarantines all of that into a place that's called hell. And yes, hell is real. Hell is the place where those who do not want God, those who do not want to repent of their sin, is the place where they go. Heaven is the place where all those who have accepted God's invitation go. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes that when he comes in his glory... And he's bringing all the angels with him. And he says he's going to sit on his throne. And he's going to divide people like a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. And he's going to put the goats on one side and the sheep on the other side. And he's comparing the sheep to the believers. And he tells the sheep, come into my presence. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so I encourage you this morning that you make sure you're not of that second group. Because today we can sit here together. But Jesus is saying there's a day coming where the division will happen where you'll never sit together again. You'll be divided into the two groups. And if you're not sure where you, which group you're in, please talk to someone here this morning and we'll help you. But heaven will be such a beautiful place because all evil will be kept out of it forever. John goes on in verse 9, he says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, I, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And so the angel takes, this, takes John to a mountain that's, he says, great and high. He's giving him the best seat in the house, so to speak. To be able to watch this heavenly city, Jerusalem, come down. To rest on this new earth. Now perhaps the mountain is great and high. Uh, often it describes in the Bible that like Jerusalem was built on the side of a mountain. You had the temple up higher than the city. And I wonder if the new Jerusalem is going to be patterned after that. But we're also going to see why he needs to be on such a high mountain when we see the size of the city. If he's going to see it in perspective. He goes on, he says, He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, if you listen to my, we're there at Arm Lake two weeks ago, and you listen to my sermon about the present heaven, and all the descriptions of light, split into all the colors of light, all reflecting God's light. We have the same thing happening here. That's what uh, this new Jerusalem is designed, is to re designed to reflect light in all its colors. Wherever God displays himself, he does so in brilliant light, not just white light, but vibrant colors. Now, why does John compare it to Jasper? Because you can find Jasper, I believe, in all the different colors. And he describes this jasper as being like a crystal, clear as crystal. And why is this clear as crystal? Because the light shines through and just reflects that. Verse 12, 
It had a great high wall, 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out as, like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. So let's try to picture this city for a moment. We're going to take a drive around the city. Now you turn that measurement, the ancient measurement stadia into the 12,000 stadia into ours today. Uh, if you're going to take a drive, you're going to drive for 14 to 1500 miles just for one side. So 2250 to 2400 kilometers just to one side. So we'll, we'll just take that in, the, in, in between there of 2300 kilometers. So you drive for three, 2300 kilometers. On that distance, you've passed three gates. So a huge distance between the gates. You reach the corner, now you drive for another 2,300 kilometers, again, three gates. You reach the corner, you drive for another 2,300 kilometers, again, three gates. Now you turn that corner and you drive for another 2,300 kilometers, again, three gates, and you're back where you began. It's a long distance. You've just traveled 9,200 kilometers to go around the city. So this slide gives you a perspective. If you were to impose that on North America. That's the size of the city. Huge. Now you would have to be on a high and lofty mountain to be able to see that in perspective coming down. Now here's what really astonishes me, and my brain can't grasp it. John says the city is as high as it's wide and long, so it's 2,300 kilometers high. And that I don't understand. How can a city be 2,300 kilometers high? Is it a cube with many layers? Like living in a gigantic apartment with each layer having everything it needs? But that doesn't fit the description that comes later. Not at all. Is it a triangle like a pyramid? Is it a high mountain? Or is it something else that's totally outside of our experience and comprehension and John just can't describe it to us? And I'd say that's more likely the case. But when you think of the scale of the things, the scale of the city, I wonder if the new earth is going to be huge in comparison to our earth as it is now. I'm no proof of that. It's just a thought. But back to the gates. On the gates are written in the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the walls are sitting on 12 foundations. And the foundations are written in the names of the 12 apostles. And in this symbolically, we just see the coming together of God's plan both for Israel and for the church. There's one more detail about the wall. It's 144 cubits, which is about 216 feet. And we aren't told what, though, high or thick. But many of your translations will say, simply say it's 144 cubits and not try to tell you that. But other translations will say it's 144 cubits or 216 feet thick. 
And because we're told it's high, and uh, they're assuming that this is referring to how thick the wall is. But how would you like to go for a stroll on this wall? Extremely high wall, 216 feet thick through. And it goes for that 9,000 kilometers. You like to go for a stroll there? And it's a very unique wall because it's made up of jewels. Verse 18, the wall was made of jasper. The city of pure gold is pure as glass, and the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stones, 12 different precious stones reflecting all the different colors. Again, we're right back to that. Everything is designed to reflect the light of God. Can you imagine 1,400 miles sitting on jewels, walls, reflecting light? And within the walls, this, the city is made of gold, but not gold like ours. This is called a transparent gold. Light shines through it and light reflects from it. It gleams like a jewel itself. Verse 22, John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The, sun does not, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And the lamb is its lamb. Now from this verse, many people think there's not going to be any sun or moon or stars. But the Bible is very clear. The heavens are recreated. There will be sun, moon, and stars. But in the city, they're not needed. In all the descriptions of God in heaven up to now, is describing him in terms of fire and brilliant light, as bright as the sun or even brighter. And John says now that light is going to shine out from God and it's going to light up this whole city. And because God is forever in the city, the city is forever bathed in this brilliant light. And all the gems and the walls and the buildings and the streets, everything is designed to reflect the brilliance of God. There'll be no night in the city because it goes on 24-7 because God lights it up 24-7 with his presence. It's always daytime there. Or rather we should say it's always God time there. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates be shut for there'll be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So now we have some new information. There are nations outside this city. And they're going to come into the city. And they're going to bring their glory and splendor into this city. And so who are these nations? We're not told. But there'll be no night there in the city. So they'll be coming and going. Bringing their glory and honor into the city all the time. Verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. So all these nations have their names written in the book of life. John goes on, gives us some more details about these nations. Verse 22, he says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and so try to picture this. This great street that is leading to the throne of God is divided by a great river flowing out from the throne of God. It's the water of life that's flowing out from God's throne. 
On the, each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Now we have a new piece of information. These nations are mortals. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear that we give up mortality when we die. We're resurrected with immortality. But these nations are mortal who require to drink. They're required to drink of the water of life. They're required to eat of the tree of life. So they're like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not created immortal. They were created as mortals and they had to eat of the tree of life. So their bodies would be always renewed and they could live, continue to live. And that's why God kicked them out of the garden so they could no longer, they couldn't eat of the tree of life. And so then death set in. And so we have this water of life and there's these trees of life that they're eating from. And they bear, they bear fruit every month and even the leaves can be eaten and they bring healing, it says, to the nations. And the throne of God says, and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Heaven's not just a place of luxury and delicious banquets. We're going to have work to do. We're going to serve God. As humans, we were created to work. We were created to work. Work brings meaning, joy, and satisfaction into life. It was the curse that turned work into drudgery and hardship. Again, work will take its rightful place. And we'll be serving him forever. It says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, uh, we're brought back to this. The pinnacle and joy and de uh, delight in heaven is going to be our relationship with God. Verse 5, there will be no more night. They'll not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord their God will give them the light and they will reign forever and ever. So who are we going to be reigning over? going to have to use your imaginations there this is your future home Wainwright is only a temporary home and everything that you have labored for and you have built here in Wainwright one day is going to burn up it's going to cease to exist it's going to become nothing this new Jerusalem is our eternal our final our forever home and what a home it'll be now, to most people, the thought of home brings a feeling of warmth and comfort, a sense of security, and maybe even joy. And it's my prayer this week, you have listened to John's description of your future home, that you gained an excitement for what's coming. But even more than that, I hope that within you, your spirit connected with that sense of home. This is what I long for. This is home. This is what I'm waiting for. C.S. Lewis, writing the Narnia series of children's books, in his last book called The Last Battle, there's a final battle between uh, good and evil. And at the end of the battle, Aslan, who's the figure of Christ there in the book, picture of Christ, he brings an end to the land of Narnia. And as the children and the talking animals move from a dying Narnia into a new land, a new world, a sudden realization hits them. The new world is similar to the old world of Narnia, which they have just left. And in trying to describe the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia, C.S. Lewis takes us to the picture of a window and a mirror. 
and the mirror reflects what you see out the window. So you look out the window and you're looking at a beautiful valley. Then you turn to look at the mirror and you see the same picture. But the reflection in the mirror is somehow different. It's somehow deeper. It's somehow more wonderful. Somehow, he says, more like a place in a story, a story you've never heard, but which you very much want to know. And then quoting the book, he says, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was like a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it was meant if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Let me just change the words, and I think we're going to identify with that unicorn. I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all my life. I never knew it till now. The reason that I loved this earth so much was that sometimes it looked a little bit like this. Come with me further up and further in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> your word has said that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And today we've just caught a little bit of a glimpse. John trying to describe something that very earth-like very like what we experience now and yet so much greater and better and indescribable. And that's our future. And I pray that within all of us this morning that there would be that longing for it, that anticipation. And may that anticipation drive what we do today, impact how we live our lives out. Father, we just thank you that you're able to do immeasurably more than ever we ever ask for or imagine. And so we long for our eternal home. And we give you thanks that it's already done. It's sure, because your word has said so. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.